we're jumping right in tonight pretty much at full speed i'll give you i'll start you off with a real quick recap of some of the places we've been but there as usual is plenty to cover tonight as we continue on in this doctrines of grace study so let, let's do that now we've here on this wednesday night series we've covered already a lot of introductory material essentially that the doctrines of man and sin man's total depravity total inability and now we've come to the, the very to some at least controversial issue of election god's election which can be defined as god's choice before the foundation of the world to save some people and not others now the fact that god does this that he predestines some for salvation is quite clear in scripture it's a fact we established back in lesson seven the mere just the plain fact that god chooses some and what what still might interest some of you uh, even those newer to the study is that both calvinists and arminians believe that they both believe in election they both believe in predestination and those terms refer to both sides of this long-standing debate between god's role and man's role in our salvation is God primarily responsible or is it cooperation between God and man? These represent two sides of that equation. And they both believe that scripture teaches that God, he actually chooses some for salvation. So that's, that's a basic belief that you could say all evangelical Christians hold. The, the real difference, though, as we've reiterated, comes down to how God makes such a choice. What's the basis of God's choice of some for this salvation? Why does God elect some to eternal life and leave others for judgment? Well, Calvinists, the, this one side, believe that God made his choice according to his own plan, his own purposes, according to the hidden yet perfect counsel of his will. God chose the elect based on nothing in them. They, they weren't special. They weren't any better or different or smarter or wiser. He simply did it according to his own perfect plan, which is hidden from us, just according to the counsel of his own will. This belief is therefore referred to as unconditional election because it wasn't conditioned on anything in, in us. It was unconditional, just his own free choice. Arminians, on the other hand, believe that God made his choice based on man's free will. He chose based on, on us, basically. God gave humans a truly free will. So he can't, he can't determine our fate apart from our free will. He, he, he can't overturn our free will. So Arminians believe that God chose people based on their own free choice of God. Now, the Bible teaches that this, this thing called election, God's predestination, when did it take place? It's very clear, before the foundation of the world. So Arminians rely on God's foreknowledge to account for his choice of people. They believe that before the moment of creation, God, he looked forward into time to, to see who would, of their own free will, come to believe in him. And then he, he chose those people. He made them the elect, those who had foreseen faith. And so this view is called conditional election. Obviously because God's choice was conditioned on foreseen faith. Who would come to believe in God of their own free will? So again, both sides, Calvinists, Arminians, and I trust by now you're familiar with those terms. They both believe in election, in predestination, but they differ on the basis of that election. One side believes that God made his choice unconditionally. The other side believes that God made his choice conditionally. And so that's the divide. Now, I, want, I just want to reiterate that because you got to 
you've got to get to know those terms, these concepts pretty well if you're going to follow along with our study in weeks gone by and, and especially today. And last week, we spent all of our time starting with the Arminian side and their belief of conditional election. And we, just, we spent all of our time just exploring what they believe. We looked at historically how their, their belief came to be. And then we looked at Arminian support for conditional election, meaning, you know, why do they believe it? What, what, what verses, what, what arguments do they give? We covered all that last week. But many Christians, myself included, find that their support to be very unconvincing, to say the least. It just doesn't pass muster. And on the flip side, there's actually several fatal flaws to this view of conditional election that it, it needs to be rejected as unbiblical, which which is why we we don't believe it here, at least at this church. The Bible does not teach conditional election. And so what we're going to do tonight, we're going to now spend all of our time tonight teaching that, teaching why conditional election falls so far short and and why we reject it. And so tonight you have before you just a little handout. You can see why there's no homework. It's more just note-taking. So it's just a bunch of blank paper for notes pretty much. But we're going to cover seven major reasons we reject our conditional election as unbiblical. And granted, this will take a good amount of time. We have our hands full tonight. But at the same time, that's why we're doing this study on a Wednesday night as opposed to a Sunday morning. Wednesday nights gives us the opportunity to, to delve into deeper Bible study, even a little apologetics, go places we wouldn't necessarily go on a Sunday morning and just and, and, and go further and, well... We're in no rush, per se, so we have an evening to ourselves to go over why we don't believe in conditional election. And with, with this stuff, and, and I guys, uh, I, I trust you understand, rather, uh, the aim of this study is to fully expose you to, to both sides of this debate on, on God and man and salvation, and, and to explore them both. We want to let them speak for themselves, that the other side, so to speak, but equally important to not only know what we believe, also why we don't believe what, what others do believe. They're still our brothers and sisters in Christ, but we have reasons why we, we believe what we believe and, and don't believe what, what they do believe, if that makes sense. So all that goes to say tonight, we're just going to immerse ourselves in, in why we reject this view of conditional election, that God, he looked forward in a time, saw who would believe of their own free will, and then made them the elect. Seven reasons why we just don't buy that. First, conditional election is not taught in Scripture. It's not taught in Scripture. And we actually already covered this last week. I know that might sound, I hope that doesn't sound trite, but we must have covered it last week. We'll briefly repeat it here, but it, it really is the biggest problem with the view. And, and we could just end here, of course, but we won't. But it's just not expressly taught in Scripture. If you had an Armenian say, show me like a one verse where this notion of God looking forward in a time is found and, and choosing those who chose him first, show me one verse, just, just one. And uh, maybe we could start somewhere, but there are, there are none. As we saw last week, we actually studied what Armenians themselves teach and how they support their own teaching. It became painfully obvious there's not a single verse that actually supports what they believe. You won't find any verse that teaches God chooses people based on foreseen faith. He chooses people, but never based on foreseen faith. You never see a verse depicting God looking forward into time to find out who would believe in him 
and then electing them based on their free will choice. None of that. The whole concept of God's election conditioned on his foreknowledge of man's free choice, it's a fabrication. It was something made up for another reason. Instead, again, last week we we covered this, but their entire case, it's really built on human reason, theological presuppositions, and then, you know, a smattering of Bible verses that are really about other topics. For example, we saw how they reasoned, well, look, salvation is by faith, right? So election must be by faith. Justification is by faith. Adoption is by faith. Regeneration is by faith. So it stands to reason election must be by faith as well. But we pointed out the problem with this inferential thinking that they really haven't proven anything. They just assert, well, look, election and salvation by faith, they're related. So one must be the cause of the other. Salvation by faith. Faith must be the cause of election. But you can't just say that. It's actually a logical fallacy called a false cause fallacy. You're just saying they're related. That doesn't prove one cause the other. And at the end of the day, they, they, they can't prove that faith caused God's election because it's not found in the Bible. There are, again, no verses that, that teach that God's election was based on foreseen faith. In reality, though, what's driving this whole train is their desire to uphold man's freedom and God's love. They're trying to uphold man's freedom and defend God's love. That, that's, that's behind all of Arminianism. That's how it started and, and really how it came to be. Upholding man's freedom and defending God's love. And they believe conditional election is the only option that allows them to do that. Because the, the other side, unconditional election, where, where God just chooses of his own free will, and he makes a choice. Well, that turns humans into robots and God into a moral monster. And so we, we can't have that. We have to find an alternative. And so conditional election was, was birth. And, and they, they find it more acceptable, at least, to... Sure, you, maybe you have to read into Scripture here and there a little bit in the white spaces. But that's better than turning humans into robots and God into a monster. They reason. But it's, it's actually not good enough. Because we, we just have one question in this whole study. And it is... What does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach about God's role and man's role in salvation? I don't care what philosophy says or what seems reasonable to man, what, what's appealing to the natural mind. We, we don't really care about that. Just what does the Bible say? That's our only primary question. And just let the Bible speak and believe what it says, even if it means you have to abandon your system or, or it challenges something you used to believe. Well, so be it. And since the Bible says nothing expressly about conditional election, and we will find out in the next few weeks, it has a ton to say about unconditional election, it's not a hard choice. What the Bible says is actually quite clear. It's just, can you stomach it or not? And if you can't, well, you're going to find conditional election a lot more appealing, even though it has so many holes. Well, first off, you could say, in general, the burden of proof for conditional election, it's really on Arminians. We don't really need to make a case against conditional election because they haven't really made a case for conditional election. You could say that, and that's fair. But we're going to keep going. We still want to show even further why this view of conditional election falls short. Not only is it just not found in Scripture, and that's our primary reason, it's just not a biblical truth, 
But it's a fabricated notion that runs into hurdle after hurdle, and it can't get over them. It just falls down each time. Now we're gonna we're gonna go quickly. There's a lot to cover, but you guys know you can stop me anytime for questions uh, as you see fit. Um, but let, we're gonna keep going. So number two, conditional conditional election gets God's foreknowledge wrong. It gets God's foreknowledge wrong. And that's a big part of it, as you know, that it's tied into God's foreknowledge. They get God's foreknowledge wrong. Now, last week we did point out, to be fair, there are two verses which they do speak of God's foreknowledge in connection to his election. And that's true. Armenians make much of these verses, and at the very least, it's going to be worth our time to study them. But we're going to quickly see they don't mean what Armenians make them out to mean. But let's see that for ourselves, right? A little Bible study. These two verses are Romans 8, 28 through 30, and 1 Peter 1, 1 and 2, which we looked at last week. But let's look at them again. Turn to Romans 8. There's Romans 8, 28 and 30, or through 30, and 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. And we'll start in Romans 8. And I'll read for you verses 28 through 30. You can turn there and then follow along. It says, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Then verse 29, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called... And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. And here we have a verse of God's saving activities. And verse 29 makes pretty clear that God's foreknowledge comes before his predestination. And Arminians will make much of the fact that God's foreknowledge precedes his act of predestination. Okay, that's fine. Keep a finger there because we're going to go back and forth. And now turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, just so we can read them both first. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is the next passage. And in in large part, it's similar to Romans 8. So as we cover Romans 8, we're covering most of 1 Peter as well. But 1 Peter 1, 1 through 2, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen, and that's the same word for elect, who are chosen, verse 2, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Then we have another verse that, again, it's, it's similar to Romans 8. It's a passage which mentions the elect in verse 1. And it says they're chosen, how? According to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so we have another verse pointing out that God's foreknowledge was involved in his decision to save or to elect certain people. In both cases, God elected people based on his foreknowledge of them. Okay, so now keep a finger in 1 Peter and and you can go back to Romans 8. These verses are actually quite clear in stating that God's foreknowledge preceded his election. 
And the thing is, though, Calvinists agree. We, we don't dispute that at all. It, it's actually very clear. God's foreknowledge came before his act of uh, predestining or electing some people. God predestines those whom he foreknew. That's true. But you see, Arminians, they take it a bit further, and they add a qualifier that's, that's not found in the text. Namely, that God predestines those whom he foreknew would believe. If you just look at Romans 8, or you can just listen, you see verse 29, it says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. They essentially read in there, those whom he foreknew would believe, he predestined. It doesn't say that, but they essentially have to read that in to make it say what they want it to say. Because you'll notice the verse says nothing about God foreseeing the faith of these people. He rather just foreknows them. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But I want to point out first, you know, the whole concept of conditional election, it's, it's part and parcel with Arminian theology. It's one of their pillars, this belief in conditional election. And so if conditional election falls, that their system pretty much falls, because then the only other alternative is unconditional election. And that makes you a Calvinist, so they can't have that. <laughs> So they have to believe this. This is a fundamental teaching of Arminian theology. But at the same time, this belief in conditional election, it is itself supported by the pillar of God's foreknowledge. And not just foreknowledge, this very peculiar view that God looked forward in a time, saw who would believe of their own free will, and then he kind of retroactively, in a sense, elected them. It all stands and falls on that understanding of foreknowledge. So if that understanding of foreknowledge itself falls down, well, conditional election falls down with it. So what we're going to do now is, is spend a little bit of extra time just exploring this idea of foreknowledge. These verses mention it, and we believe it. We believe that God foreknew the elect. What does that really mean? Does it mean what they say it means or not? Well, let, let's keep going now. Uh, into uh, studying foreknowledge. Well, we'll spend actually a good chunk of time here. So again, try and stick with me tonight. Admittedly, a little heavy on the teaching, but you know, again, let me know if you have any questions. Now, I'll point out the first glaring problem in both Romans 8 and 1 Peter 1 for Arminians is that in both passages, they read in faith uh, to God's foreknowledge. Again, both of these verses... They say nothing about God foreseeing faith in people or their free choice of God. Neither verse says that God foreknew something about the person. They don't say that God foreknew whether they would believe or not, or that God foreknew whether they would choose God or not. Rather, both verses say God foreknew the the persons themselves. He's not foreknowing something about them. He's foreknowing them. Did you get that? It's a subtle distinction, but it's actually quite important. Everybody in this debate, we all believe, okay, God's omniscient. He knows all things. And no one doubts that God knew who would believe. Of course, we believe that God knew who was going to believe. But the question is, did he base his choice of those people on the fact that they were going to believe? These verses, they just don't teach that God based his choice of the elect on whether or not they would believe. Again, in these verses, the knowledge of future events, that's not the question. But, but people, people are being foreknown. 
not facts about people, like whether or not they would come to believe of their own free will. So first understand God's foreknowledge in these verses concerns people, the elect, not, not their, the presence or lack thereof of their faith, which is what they're trying to make these verses say, but they have to read that in. And how that works, according to Arminians, they believe that, again, God foreknew all people. He used his foreknowledge to look forward in time concerning all people. And he, he checked with each person, okay, will they believe in me of their own free will or not? But see, the problem here is for Romans 8 and 1 Peter 1, they don't speak of God's foreknowledge of all people. Do you see that? These two verses, they only concern God's foreknowledge of believers. It's actually, it's crystal clear. Romans 8, for example, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Not all people are predestined, right? Well, not all people are foreknown in the sense being spoken of here in verse 29. And so, like I said before, they're really forced to read in some qualifier in this verse. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew would believe he also predestined. That, that's what they teach these verses say. But that's the definition of something called eisegesis. It just means you're reading into the text. And that's, that's a big problem. Our, our whole goal in Bible study is what's called exegesis. It means we're drawing out of. just It's already there. I just want to draw out of the text what's already there. Never do I want to read something into the text that's not there. That, that's how you get error. Because you're importing your own preconceptions or notions into the text. But that's, that's what they're doing here. And the only reason is to support their, their belief that election is conditional. But instead, Romans 8 makes perfect sense when you take it at face value. It, just, it speaks for itself just fine. Reading into this text is both unnecessary and unbiblical. Look, if Paul wanted to speak of God's foreknowledge of the faith of the elect... He could have done it. He could have added his own qualifier. He could have easily said, you know, those whom God foreknew would believe of their own free will, he then predestined. He could have said that, but he didn't. And neither did Peter in 1 Peter 1. And that's because they were both saying precisely what they wanted to say. Namely, that God was not foreknowing something about these people, like whether they would come to believe. He was foreknowing the people themselves. This was knowledge of a person. And God, clearly, he foreknew the elect in some special way that he did not foreknow everybody else. Because this is only talking about his foreknowledge of the elect. This is a special foreknowledge, right? So what does that mean? That's our next question. If that's the case, this foreknowledge only of the elect. God foreknows all people in the sense of he knows everything about them. But then what does it mean to say that God foreknows the elect or, or, the, or believers, which is what these verses are, are talking about, right? What does that mean? Well, let, let's, let's go further down this little rabbit trail and just study this word of foreknowledge and, and foreknow in Scripture. So you've got the verb in the Bible, foreknow, prognosco in the Greek, and the corresponding noun, foreknowledge, prognosis in the Greek, where we get the word prognosis from. And at times, they can refer to simple foresight, just like you know the future in advance. You know, you know details about the future. But you have to understand there's another crucial understanding of these words. All words have a range of meaning. 
Where foreknow is not just mental knowledge in advance, but intimate knowledge in advance, relational knowledge in advance. Foreknowledge can be used synonymously with setting your affection on someone in advance. Just consider that the root word for foreknowledge, which is knowledge. That's true in the Greek as well. Prognosko has as its root gnosis or gnosko, which means knowledge. So knowledge is the root word. And how do we use the word knowledge or to know even in English? Well, sometimes it can be used to, to know details, data, facts about someone, just intellectual knowledge, right? There's also can be a relational knowledge. We can use the word know in a relational sense where you know someone. You don't just know facts about them. You have a, a relationship with them. And this actually becomes very clear when, when this word for, for knowledge is used in the Bible in, in a sexual context, which physically describes the closest two people can get. And that's why you have, for example, in Genesis 4, it says Adam knew his wife Eve. And you know what it's talking about. It's a euphemism for their, their sexual relationship. And this word knowledge is used to refer, it wasn't intellectual. This was a, an emotional, relational knowledge that they had with one another. And so you find that often in scripture, both in the Old Testament, the New Testament. This concept of, of knowing someone often has as its meaning an intimate knowledge of someone, a relational knowledge. And notably, when God speaks of knowing believers, it most often refers to his special love that he has for people, the special affection he sets on them. So, for example, Jeremiah 1.5, God said, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. God did not just know facts about Jeremiah before he was born. He's telling Jeremiah, I I knew you relationally. I I knew who you were. I had a a relationship, a special relationship with you before you were born. I consecrated you from birth. In Amos 3.2, God says to Israel, You only have I known among all the families of the earth. And notice the word known there. God knew everybody, but only Israel did he know in a special sense, in a relational sense. You see how this word is used in a, in a relational way. You have Jesus in Matthew 7, 22 and 23, where he says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out many demons, and in your name perform many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Look, Jesus knows all people in an intellectual sense, but these people are being rejected because he never knew them. And that word is being used in a relational sense. So you can see how this word has a relational aspect to it. And there's many examples. John 10, 14, Christ says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Again, gnosis, knowledge. It's used of a relationship. So you see in scripture that this concept of knowledge can have a relational sense. And so if you get that, it's the same with foreknowledge because it's, it's the same root word. We're just saying it's beforehand. So foreknowledge, it functions in the exact same way. This word is, is most often used simply to describe God's special knowledge of his people in advance. It's that relational knowledge 
in advance. God's love in advance, his affection in advance, his relationship with his people in advance, not just intellectually knowing them. God intellectually knows all people before they were born. But again, this is only speaking of the elect, this foreknowledge. And it's no wonder only believers are ever spoken of as being foreknown by God. And so when you study Romans 8 and 1 Peter 1 a little more closely now, you find this is how God's foreknowledge is being used. Now, I know I'm really laboring this point, but just stick with me a little bit further because we're going to see how this foreknowledge is being used in Romans 8 and 1 Peter 1. And that's what this is all about, right? If this stands or falls, conditional election stands or falls. So, again, back to Romans 8. Just, just look there. You want to jump to verse 29, but you can't do that. You've got to start back in verse 28. Before you talk about those whom God foreknew, how are believers described? It says, verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. To those who love God, and then it says, to those who are called according to his purpose. First, understand the foundation of God's calling of these people who are the foreknown and the predestined. The foundation of God's calling of these people was his purpose, not their purpose, his will not their will. Notice in the context, it's totally foreign is the concept of of man's choice of God. It's all about God causing all things to work together for those who are called according to his purposes. Verse 28 mentions God's choice according to his purpose. And so actually there's no need to insert some qualifier here that God foreknew people according to man's purpose. In fact, it goes against the context, which says he, he, knew, he knows them, he calls them according to his own purpose. So first, you've got to see, there's actually a direct statement in the context that bears on how God called and chose these people. Namely, it was according to his purposes. That's, that's a, pretty, a big deal, actually. And then Paul goes on to explain that these people whom he foreknew He also predestined. But again, I'll point out the object of this foreknowledge is is believers. It's people. He's not foreknowing facts about them. He's foreknowing people. And so this is enough to argue that this foreknowledge carries that relational sense. This is not knowledge about details or data. This is knowledge about people, that relational knowledge. These people are foreloved. To say that God foreknows them is to say he foreloves them. God's setting his affection on them in a special sense beforehand. Again, God foreknows all people in the sense of knowing all the facts of their life, but only of the elect can it be said that he foreloves them. He he sets his love on them beforehand. And this verse, who's it talking about? All people or, or the elect? It's only talking about the elect. And so this, this idea of foreknowledge here in Romans 8.29, it's referring to those whom God set his love on before creation. And the basis of God for loving these people was his choice. Nothing more is added. Nothing more needs to be added. God lo- set his love on them beforehand based on his own choice. That, that's what it's saying. And taking a little bit further in the context, 
This passage here, Romans 8, 28 through 30, is known as the golden chain of salvation. It's what God does in salvation. God foreknows, verse 29, he predestines, verse 30, those whom he predestined, he called, those whom he called, he justified, those whom he justified, he glorified. So you see the chain, right? God predestines, God calls, God justifies, God glorifies. It's God's work of salvation. But you see, if if you take foreknowledge to be conditioned on man's faith, then really election is based on man. The chain would read like this. Man elects himself, then God calls, God justifies, God sanctifies, God glorifies. But that, that breaks the whole chain, the whole context. It defeats the whole point of everything Paul is trying to say here, namely that this salvation, it belongs to God from start to finish. That's the whole point here. God started it and he will finish it. And that includes his choice, his foreknowledge, what was part of his choice, based on verse 28, his purpose. Nothing is mentioned of, of our purpose, our will. In fact, I'll point out real quick, if you turn the page to Romans 11, in verse 2, in the near context, Paul uses the same word again for foreknow. And it's very clear, it's, it's used in that relational sense. He's now talking about Israel, and, and it says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. God foreknows facts about all people, but this is God's foreknowledge of, of his people, the, the chosen ones. It's his prior love, his exclusive love for his people. In fact, down in verse 5 of that same chapter, it connects these people to God's choice. Verse 5 says, In the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. That's the same people whom God foreknew. And and how did God foreknow them? Well, he, he chose them. He set his love on them, and then he chose them according to his will, his plan, not ours. So all in all, Romans 8, 29, it it just doesn't say what Arminians try and make it say. That they try and make it say that God foreknew who would believe. And then he predestined those people. They say that God foreknew some fact about people, whether they believe or not, and then elected them. But in reality, Romans 8, 29, it's about God's foreknowledge uh, of people, of the elect only. And that refers to his forelove of his people, of God setting these people apart uh, in a relationship to himself. The picture over in 1 Peter 1 is, is just as clear and actually doesn't take much time because it says nearly the same thing. If you flip back over to 1 Peter 1 now, God's people, the elect, they are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. We don't dispute that. But again, as with Romans 8, there's, there's zero mention here of their faith or their free choice of God. God foreknows his people, not facts about these people. And so you have that same glaring omission that, that God was foreknowing something about them, that God was foreknowing that they would choose to believe. That's just not what the text says. And we have no reason to read into it. In fact, down in verse 20 of 1 Peter 1, what do you know? Again, the same word is used for foreknowledge. This time it's talking about Jesus. Verse 20 says of Jesus, For he, Jesus, was foreknown 
before the foundation of the world, but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. How do you think that word is being used in verse 20? Do you think God foreknew Jesus intellectually, or he foreknew facts about Jesus? Or is it saying that God foreloved Jesus? He had a prior relationship with Jesus before the foundation of the world. You see, no one actually disputes in verse 20 that foreknowledge is not referencing just mere intellectual knowledge about a person. It's talking about a prior relationship with someone. And indeed, God had a prior relationship with Jesus before the foundation of the world. And the same goes with believers. God knew them beforehand, and that's why he chose them. Why did he predestine them? Because he set his affection on them from the beginning. He set them apart of his own free will from the beginning, and therefore he elected them. Isn't it in Genesis uh, the same principle set forward that God elected Israel when he called and he said, that you're not the most, you're not the best, I'm just picking you out. Exactly, and in that passage in, in Deuteronomy 7, he says, I set my love on you, I set my affection on you, not because, this whole list, but simply because I chose you. That's it. His only reason is himself, not Israel, just himself. Yeah. So I'm hard-pressed to even think of one example in the Bible where somebody chose God. Uh, it always seems that God chose... Think about Paul, for example. Did Paul choose God? He was doing the... You know what I mean? Well, you know? yeah, from our, well, see, here's, here's the, the thing. From our perspective, it sure feels like we chose God, right? Because we have no knowledge of some, some concept of God electing us or choosing us. It's all, you could say, behind the veil. And it, it's been said many times in illustration, you know, when you, when you get to heaven and you, you pass through those gates, so to speak, you know, as a, by way of illustration, the front side of the gate says, you know, all who believed, all who chose God. And you walk and you say, that's me. I chose to believe. And that's true. Did you choose to believe? Yeah, you, you have to believe. We are commanded to believe. And we must make a choice. So in a sense, yes, we did choose to believe. But you pass through those gates and you look on the other side of the gates and the sign reads, all who've been chosen, all who are elect. And, and both are true. What, what the, 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 the way to clarify it is, the only reason we choose God is because we were chosen first. So, yeah, you can find examples of people choosing God. It's just the Bible tells us more. Why did they choose? Because we're, we are not robots. We must choose to believe. But what we're going to learn more and more is that God, in choosing us first and then calling us and regenerating us, he enables us to choose to believe. And when our, when the, when our blinders are removed and we can see him clearly, that's a no-brainer choice. We make that choice with his irresistible grace. We'll, we'll get to more of that later. Does that clarify that, that choice concept? So it's, it's, it's more of a both and, like we must choose, but the only reason we choose is because God chose first. Is there another question over here? I heard someone, no? Okay. Well, we'll leave it there for now for these two, these two verses. In all, you put them together, and they simply, they don't say what they make them out to say. They do connect election with foreknowledge. No, that's true, we don't dispute that. But they have to resort to reading into these verses to make them say what they need them to say. That God foreknew who would believe, but they just don't say that. Rather, God foreknew his people. These verses teach that before creation, God foreknew or he set his special love on this group of people. And then he therefore called them 
chose them to be his own. He elected them. Now, admittedly, I just spent the, the bulk of our time on just this, this reason number two. But like I said, it's worth it because conditional election, their whole view, it, it stands or falls on this, this kind of weird notion of God's foreknowledge. And these are the only two verses that, that come even close to teaching it. But as you can see, it, it falls short. It, they don't teach what, it, what they say it does. And, and again, we could stop here because these verses fall short of saying what they, they claim it does. The whole thing falls down. That there's no other verse that, that comes close to teaching this, this weird notion of God's foreknowledge. And it all falls down after that. But there's a little bit of time left, and we'll, we'll go through these pretty quickly now. But there's more reasons I want to point out to you. So we've made it through. You can, you can kind of breathe easy. We've made it through the, the technical stuff. And every now and then, we've got to get a little extra technical just for, for our due diligence. But let's keep going now. Reason number three. Conditional election would result in zero people getting saved. Conditional election would result in zero people getting saved. It's on the back side of your handout, by the way, if you're a note taker and you, and you care. Uh, I just gave you so much space for number two because it was the biggest one. But conditional election would result in zero people getting saved. And here we, we fall back on our studies of man and sin. Arminians, they, they really misunderstand the fallen nature of man. They believe man is basically good or that God's prevenient grace overturns the sin problem for all people. And so they believe that man on his own has the freedom and the ability to come to choose God. But that's, again, not what the Bible teaches. From our previous studies, what is the picture of fallen man even after the cross? Fallen, corrupt, depraved. After the fall, man's nature becomes sinful and, and, and bound. And this sin condition has actually affected man's will. And we have lost that ability to choose God. So we're free in the sense of being able to do what we're able to do. But we're not able to do all things. We're not able to choose God. We've lost that ability in the fall. And so reference all of our studies on total depravity and total inability. If the Arminian view of foreknowledge is correct, though, and says, just think, God looks forward into time, and he sees who would come to believe in me of their own free will. How many people would do that? How many people could do that? If everything we studied about total depravity and total inability is true, the answer is zero. Nobody can come to choose God of their own volition because of sin and the fall and the curse and so forth. Left to their own sinful, rebellious, corrupt, and depraved natures, no one can choose God. Election, unconditional election, is a necessity. Now, we do not believe it because it's a logical necessity. We believe it because it's taught in Scripture. That's next week. But you can see now, for the flip side, for conditional election, if election was conditioned on man's free choice of God, it would result... And zero people getting saved. It just doesn't make sense. Tony, you had a question or comment? Yeah, uh, it just reminds me of, uh, of uh, uh, 1 Corinthians 2, 14. I, this verse, more than any other, has shaped my, uh, my mind on this whole issue. Uh, it just really jumped off the pages to me. 
uh, from Scripture when I was a new believer. And what Paul says, uh, says that the man, the natural man, he does not receive, he doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God. Whatever's from the Spirit of God, the natural man doesn't receive those things, Paul says. Because they are foolishness to him. I mean, they're ridiculous to him. He doesn't want to choose ridiculous things, you know. But then Paul says, and, uh, and he is not able to know them because they're spiritually examined, you know, they're spiritually assessed. Uh, the natural man, he's, not only is he not, he's not able to choose God, he's clearly not able to choose God, but he's also not willing to choose God. He doesn't want to choose God, and he wouldn't have it any other way. He's content in his rejection of God. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge and key verse, First Corinthians 2.14, on man's just doubly dead picture, not willing, not able. And again, which makes conditional election <coughs> impossible. None would be saved. But thanks for reiterating that, Tony. Let's keep going here. Number four. Conditional election would give man something to boast about in salvation. Conditional election would give man something to boast about in salvation. Now, the Bible teaches we have nothing to boast about in salvation because there's nothing we have that we did not receive, including our, our faith. I'll read for you a part of 1 Corinthians 1, 26 through 31. It says, consider your calling. There are not many wise, not many noble, not many uh, worthy, according to the things of the world. But God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame that which are strong. Why? So that no one may boast before God. Verse 30 says, By his doing you are in Christ Jesus. So that is written, Let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I summarized some of the part of that, but look, why are you saved? Why are you in Christ? It says, By his doing you're in Christ. You're saved. And that's why you have no reason to boast. You didn't do anything. You're not special. Sorry. You're special because God makes you special. But let him who boasts, therefore, boast in the Lord. There's no reason for boasting in ourselves at all. But for the Arminian, that's actually not true. If, that, if what they're saying is true, we have something to boast about, namely our faith. They believe our faith comes independently of God. We believe that faith itself is a gift from God. They believe faith is not a gift, but it's a free choice. That God cannot affect because you have free will, right? This total free will. And so faith, it's not something we receive. It's something we exert of our own free will. But that hugely diminishes God's glory and grace. Salvation really is less to the praise of God's glory. And in a way, it's more to the praise of my faith. Because I did it. I chose to believe. If what they're saying is true, God was simply passively choosing those who chose him first. See how passive his election is? He's just merely, I'm choosing those who chose me first. And it, it's passive. He's not really choosing anybody. God's election, it's reactive. It's not proactive. He's just reacting to those who chose him first. Man's choice, therefore, becomes the determining factor in his salvation. And by definition, that's grounds for boasting. All of us who are saved, we can boast because we're better. We're better than all the unsaved because for, for some reason, in our ability, maybe we're just wiser or more rational, but we chose to believe in Jesus of our own free will. We're, we're better. We have grounds for boasting. 
And again, Arminians believe all unbelievers are on a level playing field, being equally enabled by provenient grace. So just just think, what's the difference in their view between a believer and a non-believer? God foresaw this person would come to believe, this person would not. What's the difference? It has something to do with that person's ability or intellect or reason or will. And that salvation, it's not entirely by grace alone, but grace plus human ability, human will. That is a a big problem. That is unbiblical. Salvation is by grace alone. And, And liberal Arminians press that even further, and then they fall into some actual heresy. In essence, though, they teach we are in Christ by our own choice, our own doing. We're in Christ by our own doing. And that's a cause to boast. But 1 Corinthians 1.30 says, we're in Christ by God's doing, and therefore have no reason to boast. And uh, I find 1 Corinthians 30 more compelling. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stick with that. Now, let's wrap up here a couple more. Number five, conditional election makes election meaningless in Scripture. Just, just think about this. Conditional election makes election meaningless in Scripture. If conditional election is true, namely that through foresight, God chose those who chose him first, then the whole concept of election it has no meaning at all. It's just, it's pointless. Well, why even speak of it? It makes no sense to speak of God choosing anyone. Because in reality, he, he didn't actually choose people. He didn't proactively choose people. God's choice was reactive. It was passive. And that's, that's not a choice at all. It makes the concept of election empty, meaningless. What, what's the point of calling us the elect? Arminians engage in doublespeak. They claim to believe in election, that God chooses some for salvation, because Scripture so clearly speaks of it. But then they redefine election, and they empty it of its meaning, such that God chooses only those who choose him first. And if that's the case, we should be called the choosers, not the chosen. The electing, not the elect, right? Because that's what they teach. We, we elected ourselves, and then God elected us. But that, that's not how Scripture ever speaks, because that's not true. And so either conditional election is not true, or terms like elect, chosen ones, the predestined, they, they become devoid of all the real meaning. They become empty terms in Scripture. In fact, it's misleading to call us the elect, that God chose us. What does that teach? It teaches us nothing of value because in reality, you know, we actually chose him first. So what, what do I actually learn by saying that God chose us? Nothing. But that's not how it's presented in Scripture. It's presented as a massive encouragement because he chose us. We can stand firm in the faith and so forth. Hopefully you can see how this belief wrongly flips Scripture on its head. Arminians make man and his will out to be supreme, where God and his will becomes bound and limited. God can't do certain things against our will. And to accomplish this, they have to systematically redefine verse after verse, which teach that God orders all things after the counsel of his will, God declares the end from the beginning, God's will is supreme, and God makes an active and proactive choice of the elect. They've got to flip the script on all of those and and make God, well, he doesn't actually do all that. But we have to reject such an unbiblical and really nonsensical view of election that, that makes election mean nothing 
and teach nothing. Lastly, number six, conditional election does not get God off the hook. Conditional election does not get God off the hook. And this this might be the, the most significant reason, actually. Number six here, that may be the greatest fatal flaw to conditional election. You have to understand, again, this was last week, but where this belief came from, it came as a response to unconditional election. It was devised, not because it's so clearly taught in Scripture, but because it's necessary to avoid unconditional election. Unconditional election, they believe it's a horrible doctrine. It turns man into robots and God into a monster. Remember? It means God is responsible for creating people and then sending them to hell, and they had no chance of being saved. And that's terrible. And so they reason, if God is good and unconditional election is true, why wouldn't God choose to save everybody? Right? The Bible says God desires all to be saved. But since not everyone is saved, Arminians say this means God is a, is a monster if, if it's up to him. And they, they have to reject unconditional election to defend the love of God. A loving God would never do that. If he had the power and the will, why wouldn't he just save everybody? You're saying that he chose only to save some when he had the power to save all these other people too and he didn't? No, we can't. We can't stand for that. We have to find a way to defend the love of God here because that's not loving. It's like you got 10 children, five of them are going to die and you have the power to save them and yet you, you choose not to. You're a monster. So how could God be any different? And so they reject it. And they believe that in the end, man must be responsible for his own damnation. How come not all are saved? Well, it's got to be our fault one way or another. It can't be ultimately up to God. God could not have unconditionally determined who would be saved and damned. So the idea of of us choosing God or not choosing God, they think that gets God off the hook. How come all these people wind up in hell eternally? Well, it's not God's fault. He gave us free will, and we chose not to believe, and so it's our fault. We, we sent ourselves to hell because we didn't believe the good news. And so God's, God's still loving, and, and we go to hell because of our own, it's our own fault, so to speak. God, God's not ultimately responsible. But here's the problem with that. So that, that's where this, this whole belief came from. That, that's, that's why they believe it. That's super fundamental. But they fail to account that, you know, God is the supreme creator. And being the creator of all things, he's still ultimately accountable for everything. Because he created everything. So just just think this one through with me. Let's just pretend what they say is true. God looked forward. Okay, before creation, God looked forward down the corridors of time. He hasn't made anything yet, but he's about to. And he looks forward into this creation. And you find out who would believe in him of their own free will, and then he would, he would elect them. And let's just pretend that people could choose God, like Arminians teach, okay? And so what, what did God see? Just in a non-blasphemous way, put yourself in God's shoes, and, and what would you see looking forward in creation? You would see, you know, a, you know a, a few million or so people choose to believe in you. But then the vast majority, billions and billions... They would not choose to believe in you. They would reject you of their own free will. And then the vast majority would, of their own free will, go to hell eternally. 
And so God in his foreknowledge, he knew, like, if I create this universe, billions of people will choose to go to hell. And so you just have to ask, well, why did God create this universe? He didn't have to. He could have created any world he wanted. God had the power to create a world where he foresaw, you know, only, only five people chose to go to hell. Why didn't he create that world? Or why didn't he create a universe where he looked forward and he said, okay, here's a universe where zero people choose to go to hell. They all choose me. They all choose to believe. Why didn't he create that world? He could have. It would have been a loving thing to do because then everybody goes to heaven, right? You see, the fact that God knew so many people would perish in this world and yet he still chose to create this world means he's just as responsible as if he unconditionally elected some and not others. You wind up in the same place. God's not off the hook. You still have to account for the fact that you didn't have to create this world where billions go to hell of their own free will. He's still accountable because he's the creator. Nobody was holding a gun to his head saying, you've got to create this universe, right? You could, in fact, turn the Arminian argument on its head and accuse their God of being unloving because he, choo- he chose to willingly create a universe where billions would perish. When he had the power to create a universe where none would perish. That's, that's super unloving, right? They, 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 could, they fall prey to that same objection. And this whole belief doesn't actually accomplish what they think it does, namely defend the love of God. That's, that's where it all started. They're just trying to defend the love of God. And that's where I truly do appreciate my Arminian brethren. They're trying to take seriously the love of God. They're trying to uphold the love of God. Amen. But they, they just don't succeed. That They don't actually account for, for that or, or get God off the hook, so to speak. On the flip side, though, according to Calvinists, we believe God doesn't need us to get him off of any hook. He, he's just fine where he is. God's character of being supremely loving is crystal clear in Scripture. In fact, the fact that God elected anyone to salvation is a display of his love in a world where no one deserves to be saved. We'll see that later. Well, to finish our time, I know I said lastly, but number seven is actually next week, which is why I said lastly for number six. But number seven, unconditional election, is so clearly taught in Scripture. This is the other side where we're talking now about unconditional election is so clearly taught in Scripture. You see, when all is said and done, their view of conditional election is just not found. And not only is it not found, it has all these fatal flaws, which we study tonight. And then on the other side, the other belief of unconditional election, it is found. It's found a lot. It's found all over. And next week we will come back and we will start studying uh, where it's found. We'll now look at the the other side of the debate, unconditional election, what Calvinists teach about it, how they explain it, and how they biblically support it. And granted, both sides have their share of objections, but we'll spend a week after that answering all those objections that people, and even you, might have to unconditional election. So that's in the weeks to come. It really boils down to, in, in my estimation, this whole study is will you accept what the Bible says? Because the Bible is actually pretty clear. And will you accept what it says, even if it's unpopular or it challenges your, your preconceptions? And uh, at least we'll make our case that the Bible clearly teaches God 
unconditionally chooses some according to his own will. You be the judge yourself. You look at the verses, but then will you accept what the Bible says? That I hope I hope you do. Janet, question or comment? Are, are you going to be back? Oh well, I asked, I guess I said next week. I guess it'll be two weeks. We'll be uh, on vacation next Wednesday. Okay. Our camping trip in Big Sur. So in two weeks we'll be back. We're still on next Wednesday. Yes. No, no, uh, no. It'll be um, next week. I think I'll probably show. We bought some great. DVDs at the Shepherds Conference, and they're on this same material, so it's it's really great high-level stuff for next Wednesday. Uh, Tim? Yeah, what do they, uh, what do the uh, Armenians do with uh, John 15, 16? You did not choose me, but I chose you. Come back next week. <laughs> or two weeks. In two weeks. Yeah, that's one of the verses we'll look at in a few weeks uh, of God's choice. And I'll, yeah, I'll just, just ask that again in a couple weeks. Okay. Yeah. All right, well, we're a little bit after time, so I'm going to pray here and we'll be done for tonight. Gracious God, we are thankful for the study this evening, and although it, it gets a little technical at times, we're still almost delighted to, to study your word. We, we simply want to know what the Bible says, Lord, and we pray that you give us eyes to see that. We know that the natural man cannot understand the things of the Spirit of the Lord. It's foolishness to him. Being spiritually praised, he's not even able to understand it. At the same time, Lord, although we've come to salvation and you've opened our eyes, still we're still sinners, and sin can, can at times fog our vision again. We have pride, we have prejudices, and I pray, Lord, you clear us of these every time we come to your word. Humble us before your word and, and illumine it to our minds. We, we just want to cut it straight. We want to rightly divide the word and, and get it right. Sometimes it requires deeper study like tonight, but, but still, Lord, show us the way. We, we just want to know you that we might worship you. Whatever it says, I pray that we, we submit to the word uh, as revealed and, and we just take it at face value, uh, not trying to please man or irrational minds, but just sitting at the feet of your word, listening, accepting, believing, and then worshiping. And we want to do that tonight. We worship you as the sovereign God who made all things and uh, from all things and for all things to all things is creation for you, Lord. And so we give you the praise tonight for, for all that you've done in creation, in our lives, and even in the study. Bless us as we depart now, and in Christ's name we pray. Amen.